Classroom Critics Podcast, a free-form film studies podcast by teachers who love talking about the great movies and their historical, cultural, and artistic significance. My name is Bill Ivers, English teacher at Nashua High School North, adjunct instructor at Southern New Hampshire University. I am with Dr. Andrew Martino, as I often am, professor of English at Southern New Hampshire University, director of the Honors Program. And joining us for the first time, and hopefully not the last, Mr. Barry Steelman, programming specialist at the Red River Theater here in Concord, New Hampshire, uh, and host of On the Marquee on Concord, New Hampshire television, and uh, an all-round film guru. Uh, we're excited to have him here in the classroom. Welcome, gentlemen. But in fact, we're not, we're not actually in the classroom uh, today. We're actually podcasting on location from Concord's, uh, actually above Concord's beautiful Red River Theater. We have a nice view. Uh, we're in the Capitol Commons building. Yeah, the Capitol. So, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're excited to kind of be outside uh, our, our normal That's right. environment. Is it is just brighter than usual? <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah, cla- okay. classrooms are very dimly, you know, <laughs> okay. it's the fluorescent lighting isn't, that sometimes is... Uh, but this is this is refreshing, definitely. So, uh, the Red River Theater, which um, it's it's a gem of you know f- for the area, it's kind of like a film buff's mm-hmm. uh, house of worship, right? Offering independent films, cult classics, um, timeless favorites, foreign films, and many opportunities to learn and discuss uh, the great art of movie making, yeah. which is why we're here today. So, uh, the classroom critics are excited to be here. So, today we're going to discuss the 1954 crime drama on the water on the waterfront. Almost sounded. New York, uh, New Jersey there, <laughs> On the Waterfront, starring Elia Kazan, starring Marlon Brando, Eva Marie Saint, Lee Cobb, Carl Mar- Marlden, Malden and Rod Steiger. So what a great cast, huh? Yes. Yeah. So On the Waterfront was awarded uh, eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Brando, Best Supporting Actress for Saint, and uh, Best Director for Kazan. And uh, so the film... Since has appeared on many lists, uh, top 100 lists, including the AFI, um, number eight, 1997, and number 19 in 2007 for what those lists are worth. And I guess we have another list coming up next year. That's so. right. Now, um, to get the discussion going, there are you know the many layers to this film, of course, which I'm sure we'll get to. But I thought it might be helpful to begin with some context here. So uh, perhaps we can talk about some of the events and, and motivations that set this film in motion. How about using the word redemption? Does that come into play here? A redemption story. Yes. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's the the spiritual part of the of the tale, right? Yeah. Uh, it started off, however, sort of being um, set in motion by a series of articles, 1948 articles by journalist Malcolm Johnson exposing crime on the New Jersey waterfront, uh, which included extortion. Mm-hmm. Um, racketeering, union violence, um, mafia activity. So, there is little suspects. Oh yeah, all all that stuff. So there there is also a journalistic element to this film as well, which I hope we will get to. That really exposed a lot of what was happening during this particular period. So, wouldn't you agree? You know, kind of get the discussion rolling that this film kind of succeeds uh, when it comes to conveying, let's say, you know, the misery, the corruption that these poor men um, had to go through, had to endure as longshoremen during this time. Oh, absolutely. And, and in fact, uh, Kazan has stated in many interviews that he used actual longshoremen in the film uh, as extras, that these were people that that he felt comfortable with, that, that he walked among uh, the, the shores and the docks, and, and Brando himself felt comfortable with them. Uh, so I think they, one of the things I like about the film is the honesty. 
uh, that it, it is an incredibly honest film uh, that shot for the most part on location um, with real people and you get a sense of, of, of what at this particular time in American history um, what preoccupied a lot of these people and it was a case of uh, as is pictured on a couple of occasions during the course of the film. Uh, the use of pigeons yeah. uh, are, are visually seen, and it was uh, uh, there's some mention of hawks uh, being in the yeah. area, and that uh, uh, pigeons oftentimes fell prey mm-hmm. to the hawks. Well, if you put that into a little different uh, uh, format, you might consider the hawks being uh, Lee J. Cobb and his uh, men yeah. uh, versus uh, the longshoremen, who were the Pigeons, yeah. the ones that uh, uh, lined up uh, every day, hoping to get a tab that would produce uh, a day's pay, and sometimes being victimized by something they had either said or done, or done mm-hmm. that was definitely not uh, in line with right. the way you were supposed to be acting. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's funny how the poverty of uh, of the piece, uh, trying to, to get work for the day, uh, dehumanizes the longshoremen. And you see it not only in their in their faces and in, in, in the, the clothes that they wear. There's a couple of references to, you know, the, the threadbare coats and, and things like that. But How, uh, how clothing is passed along. Exactly, right, yeah, from, from one person to, to the next. Uh, and it's, it's I think that coincides with the redemption, that they become human again at the end when they gain their dignity. Uh, by, by um, you know, speaking. And up. also the settings. Yeah. Uh, tenements. Yeah. Uh, tenements are uh, uh, in play here. And uh, uh, bars that you have to go yeah. upstairs in order to get to, mm-hmm. they're not on, like, the street That's level. Right, yeah. Uh, it's a, a definitely uh, a, an atmospheric piece that uh, Hoboken apparently had uh, quite a bit to offer, yeah. and they said, uh, this is where we're going to shoot this thing. And uh, uh, there was uh, ample opportunity to create this atmosphere yeah. that really permeates the uh, the movie uh, sincerely. And you got to credit Kazan for um, upon that, you know. I mean, I can't envision this film being shot uh, in a on a sound stage yeah. or in a back lot. It had to be where it happened. You know, you there's one particular shot um, down by the waterfront uh, where you have um, a couple shots actually. We have um, Terry Malloy talking to uh, Evie down by the water, and, and you can see uh, through the fog during this time this this one lone building rising above it, and it's the Empire State Building. Yeah. No skyscrapers around it, obviously, as there are today. And uh, it just really captures, um, you know, at least my understanding of this particular location during this period. And also, if I remember the scene, if we're thinking about the same scene, sound effects obliterate his dialogue. Mm -hmm. Sure. Where he's trying to explain what happened and how he was so sorry that it did happen and that he didn't realize it was going to go to the degree that it did uh, to uh, uh, destroy uh, her brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's noises. That's that, right. Yeah, uh, really kind of b- b- blank out. You see the lips moving, yeah. uh, and you see the reaction on her face. So you, you know that he's fessing up yeah. something, uh, which is it pretty much uh, 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 was expected. Yeah. But you you don't he- 
physically hear yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And then you have Carl Malden's character standing above them, almost like you know the confessor listening to. Yeah. Our, he had a really cool name, yeah. Father Barry. I Father, like that. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm sure we'll say about him. About yeah, that. yeah. The Barry, uh, <laughs> the rough and tumble priest. Yeah. You know, <laughs> trying to prove he's one of the you know one of the the flock. Sure. The smoking his cigarettes and drinking and his all, beer. You know, yep. I, mm-hmm. The primary characters were based on real people. Yeah. Uh, you know, it may, may not have been uh, you know right down the line as far as uh, uh, the life, yeah. but there was some uh, correlation between uh, what you saw on the screen and what actually existed in reality. Mm-hmm. That's what Kazan wanted. And again, getting back to uh, the casting, you know, yeah. I mean, actors. Um, you know, were popular. The actors have populated this film in terms of the extras. They they don't they don't look like extras in yeah, Hollywood. No, movie. you can. Right. Um, from what I understand, this film was shot in the dead of winter, so you can actually see the you know the blood drain from everyone's face. As, uh, everyone. and you see the breath too. Yeah, that's oh, right. yeah, yeah. So right. you, you knew that this was not. Uh, no, you, it was not on a soundstage, right. and it was not being faked as far as uh, the degree uh, in which they were acting yeah. in cold temperatures. They looked they looked miserable out there. Yep. And from all accounts, Brando was miserable. He wasn't used to this, but he, you know, he, he was complaining constantly about the cold. Yeah. And uh, you know, the other the other gentlemen who popular again popular this film were all um, used to this, but you know, they they didn't look like Hollywood extras. No, they weren't tan. <laughs> they they were uh, wearing their regular clothes, and, and they were actual workers. They they knew how it worked down there, yeah. and uh, it's all there. It's it's uh, it really adds to the whole vibe yeah. in a big way. So um, how do we feel about this film? I guess if we're going to go ahead with the idea of the context. What about this film, uh, which, you know, the big controversy with Kazan's life obviously has to do with uh, his naming names in 1952 to the um, House of Un-American Activities yeah. uh, Committee. Uh, I believe he named uh, eight, eight or so names around that number. Yeah. Um, uh, how do we feel about this as a an explanation about what he about his decision to do this? It's uh, we can, it, one thing that really rings when I in my mind when I see this film is Elliot Kazan going up um, onto the stage during the 1999 yeah um, the Scorsese who brought him out right yeah, yeah. Scorsese and the, the, the memory of what had happened uh, half a century before really wasn't uh, eradicated in a lot of right. I remember watching that and, and seeing uh, Nick Nolte uh, sitting there oh, yeah. with his arms crossed uh, oh, yeah. deliberately yeah. Uh, kind of snub others were, others others were, were clapping, clapping and, and yeah. standing and, and he wasn't the only one but I just remember Nick Nolte because he was sitting in the front sure. yeah. I, think, I think some went to the degree of not being willing to be present at yeah. the ceremony also yeah. because of that fact. Yeah. Uh, very, very, very strong feelings about what uh, took place where people spoke up and hurt the careers of others. Yeah. And mm-hmm. when you're dealing in that sort of activity that really looks like a witch hunt, yeah. uh, and the question is, what's the motivation for making 
the name mentioned? Uh, is it to really reveal that uh, this person at one time attended a, a, a meeting that was communist-oriented, or were they indeed part of a group yeah. uh, that was uh, 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 specifically communist in genre? Uh, or uh, there's there's always the possibility that th there could be some sort of uh, uh, deviousness mm -hmm. about naming the name, because how many times do you see it on the front page of newspapers, so-and-so is accused of a crime, so-and-so is accused of doing something, and then they're exonerated. Yeah. Uh, it, it wasn't true, yeah. the statement that was made. But where does the exoneration take place? Yeah. It's usually not on the front page. It's buried back in the newspaper, and what people remember yeah. is the fact that they were accused and uh, presumably still yeah. feel that yeah. there's probably uh, a potential for guilt. Uh, even though there was an exoneration. Sure, the suspicion always hangs about them. Always hangs there. Uh, so you, there's no getting rid of that. When I, I just watched the film recently, and I had a hard time watching it, um, you know, knowing what, what Kazan did. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't like it as much because of that. Uh, I allowed my emotions to get involved with the art of, yeah. of the film. Well, and you might even take it to the degree of thinking that it prevented the person who was originally uh, destined to be Terry Malloy. John Garfield mm. was an actor that Kazan knew. He had used him in a Gentleman's Agreement, mm -hmm. had a small part, but he was in, in the film. And uh, uh, Garfield was in some pretty uh, cutting-edge a film noir stuff in the late 40s and early 50s. Uh, but he was one that was named, and it really caused a great deal of concern about uh, him being able to get a job. Yeah. And at 39 years of age, he had a heart attack and died. And there was some thought that it was the pressure uh, that he was feeling from uh, the involvement with this uh, HUAC investigation. Uh, but the, the mere fact that uh, initially when they started writing uh, the story, uh, Garfield uh, was uh, uh, going to be the... Uh, That's who Kazan had in mind. Star. Yeah. Yep. I think it's an example for me, uh, you know, certain works that on the one hand can be viewed as uh, you know, a political tract or a piece of propaganda... But also at the same time, uh, the work transcends uh, itself. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I mean, Shakespeare's career is full of those. I mean, oh, you, sure. you can, um, let's say, you know, read Hamlet, and yes, on the one hand, it is uh, you know kind of a propaganda piece, but you you, you can't necessarily, um, especially this you know much time afterward, view it just as that. Um, it's obviously in its own right. Uh, a great work of art, you know, that has relevance to, well, you know, whatever, you know, human nature itself. So it, yeah, it, at the time it might have been, um, let's say, it, you know, let's say an excuse for behavior or, or, again, a political track, but it's, it's not all it is. Mm -hmm. Certain pieces of propaganda, yes, that's all it is, and artistically it doesn't do anything else. Um, for me, I can, I'm able to separate um, or sort of maybe compartmentalize on the waterfront as, yeah, on, okay, on the one hand, it's, um, it's Kazan's excuse for this yeah. behavior, but it, it's so much more than that. And um, and you know, for me, there's lots. You know, there are many artists, writers, directors, authors where I have to make that separation. You know, their personal politics or you know their personal behavior. 
I have to sort of put that aside. Woody and, Allen's a good example. Yeah, perfectly. You know, yeah. Roman Polanski. Yes. You know, obviously the the world of film and whatever writing poetry is, is, is filled with these people yeah. and. Artists are complicated people, uh, and and they're flawed human beings. I think of, uh, you know, Picasso and the way he treated women, or Miles Davis and the way he treated women, and any number of writers who, for whatever reason, were, um, you know, almost self-sabotaging in a way right. in their behavior. Uh, guys, could you question whether or not the backlash uh, against people who spoke out was as prevalent? at the time that On the Waterfront was made, as opposed to years after, when there could be a little perspective uh, put on what exactly did happen and how it affected people's lives. Whereas it being so close to it, uh, you know, they do that with wars, they yeah. do it with all, all manner of things that uh, when you're in the midst of it, maybe it doesn't seem quite as onerous uh, to a lot of people, especially the public. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not quite sure how uh, you know there, there was that uh, th- those hearings were being televised, yeah. uh, and there was a guy by the name of uh, Joseph Welch uh, who finally came along and, and uh, nailed uh, uh, Joseph McCarthy, uh, and everything kind of fell apart yeah. as far as the witch hunts were concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. Uh, Having lived through that, granted, I was uh, like uh, in 54, I was like 11 years old, uh, but I don't remember having gone to see On the Waterfront mm-hmm. at that time. Any, any thoughts or a- anything put in my head that this, this was made by a man who uh, did something a couple of years ago that uh, should be considered uh, uh, not the thing to do. Yeah. And this might be an apology uh, of sorts uh, for having done so or an explanation. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember that. Did, uh, he, did he apologize in his lifetime? I'm uh, I'm thinking. I want to say no. I saw. Uh, well, maybe that, uh, that's not the I, right I don't word, think. Or at I, least explanation. Yeah, I um, I watched an interview recently. He didn't. I think it was 1991, and he was explaining this, and he was very unapologetic. Okay. As a matter of fact, he put himself almost in a hero position. That you know, he he said. Uh, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly what he said. You know, I was Terry. You know that I felt the same way uh-huh. uh, on the outside, and people were were. He had to have bodyguards. Uh, he said on the set, he had to have a bodyguard. Sure. Um, sure. So there, there were things happening. But yeah. to, to, to get to your point, I don't think, to, to sort of switch it up a little bit, I don't know how a, a young film student or a young, a, a young student in a classroom watching the film would care. Mm-hmm. I mean, their, their memory is different than ours. And, and I think as, as we go, you know, more and more into, in, as that recedes into the past, students won't care as much. Younger people won't care as much about it. I almost feel that the comparison between Terry Malloy's life uh, his story, his struggle to Elliot Kazan is false. I yeah, believe, I, I believe I would it's, agree. It's a, a <laughs> it's a false comparison. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think they are synonymous examples because I, I do believe Terry is is a, a hero. He did the right thing. I believe I believe in Terry's story as a great moral tale, but I don't necessarily view Kazan's. Yeah, I agree. Uh, decision as a great moral tale. So I think it's a false comparison. Um, yeah, it's it's really tough to put yourself in, in the position of, of you know Kazan. I mean, he he might apparently believe that he did the, the right thing, and mm-hmm. uh, I disagree with it. Yeah, and, and, and but as you pointed out, when 
the Oscar ceremony uh, decided, or the Oscar people decided to give uh, Kazan an award. And uh, it was a lifetime by, achievement by, award, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. By virtue of what happened at at the Oscar ceremony uh, the following uh, springtime, uh, with this uh, getting uh, a total of what the hell would it be? Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve nominations. Because uh, uh, Lee J. Cobb, Carl Malden, and Rod Steiger were nominated for supporting actors. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think they negated each other because yeah. of the multiples. Uh, and uh, a gentleman by the name of Edmund O'Brien uh, snuck in and won the Oscar that year mm-hmm. for, um, I guess, a very good performance in a movie called uh, Barefoot Contessa yeah. with mm-hmm. uh, Ava Gardner mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Humphrey Bogart. Yeah. Uh, and the same way with Leonard Bernstein. Uh, I thought that was a dynamite. Score oh, absolutely. That, yeah. that was uh, uh, created for that movie. Uh, uh, but he didn't win. Uh, Dimitri Tiomkin won that mm-hmm. year for uh, a, a, a John Wayne film called The High and the Mighty. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I like Tiomkin's music, uh, but it was somewhat of the uh, let's punctuate everything that happens in the film with a bit of music. Yeah. Uh, and there are moments in On the Waterfront when uh, Bernstein backs off and there is no music. Let's the ambient And, and yeah. just let the scene play out mm-hmm. without the yeah. cues that music provides as far as your emotion is concerned and uh, just let the actors in the dialogue uh, uh, create. Very courageous for both the, the composer and the director, I would think. Sure. Yeah. yeah. They were experimenting. Yeah. And this was one of, the, one of the only, if perhaps the only, movie that was of a non-musical nature that Leonard Bernstein had anything to yeah. do with. But, yeah, much, as, much similar to Aaron Copeland. Aaron Copeland did a few film scores, mm-hmm. uh, and, they, and they were very good. But it was sparse. It wasn't like a, a T. Umkin or a Max yeah. Steiner where, uh, gee, uh, you know, w- w- what are you doing? Can you bang out a score for us? Sure. Uh, and not that it was that easy, yeah. but it, it was uh, uh, much more uh, present mm-hmm. than anything that Bernstein or uh, use Copeland again as yeah. an example as, as to what they did and what they could have provided other movies uh, yeah. had they been asked to do so or willing to do yeah. so. And I love the score as a, you know, Bernstein as a storyteller. There's, you know, especially at the beginning, there's the very percussive uh, intro. You know, you see the waterfront and you hear, um, you know, lots of, you know, timpanis and, and um, percussive percussive drums basically underscoring it. And I think it's really, it just, it sounds like, um, you know, you can, it echoes, the, you know, the machinery and, you know all the, the whatever the the, ma- the metal the mm-hmm. banging crates. It's very industrial in that sense. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. and it's also ominous. Yeah. It is too because yeah. the 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 main titles the the music is 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 rather low key. Uh, very tender. Yeah. Uh, and just as soon as it goes to that first scene where there's the sh- there's a, a ship by the dock yeah. and the city is in the background and the guys are coming out of the uh, the, the the clubhouse or whatever you mm-hmm. want uh, the uh, meeting house yeah. there by on the waterfront. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden, boom, 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 there's uh, uh, really uh, kind of agitated music that's kind of making you wonder. Well, you know, what what are, what are we doing here? Uh, yeah. What, what kind of a situation are we going to get plunked into? Mm-hmm. And the the opening credit uh, credits, um, the music that plays over the opening credits, I think, is very beautiful. It's um, 
again, it's very it's a very tender part of the, the score. And, and it's reprised a couple of times yes, during the course. Yes, it's the main theme, um, yeah. I would say, right? And it, it, only at the beginning, it's I believe it's a, a French horn, which it sounds, um, you know, it almost it's almost like a a gentle version mm. of a uh, of a ship's horn. Yeah. You know, it sounds very. Uh, Reminiscent of that. Uh, getting back to the um, the nineteen ninety nine ceremony, just it pops into my head. I remember uh, one of the things that strikes me about that clip, you know, when it shows the audience and it shows you know some people clapping and some people scowling. Uh, there's a shot of Steven Spielberg and just uh, very typical of him. He's he's sitting, but he's clapping. Yeah. <laughs> so he's you know he's kind of taking the the safe route, not um, committal, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So it's you know it's kind of a heartbreaking little. Little piece of film history that that moment, you know, but because they look quite a legacy, yeah, uh, film wise. Sure, uh, I mean, yeah. you, you say what you want about East of Eden, right? Uh, it introduced James Dean into the scheme of yeah. things, and uh, pretty much Kazan was the, the the man who made that happen. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, one movie that I always uh, enjoyed a great deal, which uh, again uh, was he was teaming up with. Bud Schulberg, A Face in the Crowd, where Andy Griffith played uh, a, uh, uh, a pretty much a bum who right. became a personality mm-hmm. and had the ability to manipulate politicians and all sorts of things that uh, he shouldn't have been able to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was just uh, what the public will allow people to gravitate to if... Uh, you're not careful. That's true. And in that 1999 ceremony, uh, everyone in that room who was in the industry, uh, you know, were affected by the work of Kazan. You sure. Know? I mean, I think Kazan really played a big role in making that transition from, you know, old Hollywood, the golden age, to uh, a more modern, um, you know, some of the more modern conventions, such as film, you know, film realities that we expect. Um, we, we, we talked about the reality of mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, the visual realities, but... Also, the you know the the performances, yeah. just the, the yeah. performances of, of the the central characters. He and Brando had a track record. Yeah. By that time, uh, having done uh, 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 Streetcar Named Desire yeah. and Viva Zapata. Yeah. Broad perform broad performances around this time quickly became um, out of vogue. Yeah. And uh, obviously, Brando played a huge part, and Brando was you know obviously ushered along by Kazan and his oh yeah his um, his art as a director. And uh, you want to talk about performances from, from sure. the, um, the individual uh, characters? I, I think it's a testament to Kazan's genius that he that he had the, the you know he could allow his his actors to act that he wasn't imposing it wasn't an imposing figure on no, them not that, at all. that he did it and and you know there's that you know probably the most famous scene right uh, could between, have been a contender yeah could have been a contender which uh, in, in the same interview I mentioned earlier Kazan said I didn't direct that. I just, you know, they, it was, it was uh, Steiger and, and Brando. Just, but he but did, really he did direct it. It really wasn't improvised. It was no, it wasn't improvised. It was scripted. Uh, yeah, and and that was uh, the right. stories that I read is that uh, initially Brando was kind of being a little bit playful yeah. with the dialogue and was asking uh, Steiger, you know, uh, who won the ball game last night, <laughs> or just yeah, yeah. Uh, questions yeah. that had absolutely nothing to do with the script and or and or yeah. the movie. And uh, uh, Kazan had to speak. Up and say, cut it out. Uh, no, stick stick to what stick we're here to, to the do. Script. Yeah, uh, but by not directing it, yeah. he was directing yeah. it. And uh, 
it's uh, yeah. From what I've uh, read in articles and uh, a number of interviews, it, it seems that Brando had a problem with the script. He had a problem with some of the events in that that scene. He could not get past the idea um, of his own brother pulling a gun on him. Mm-hmm. So you know, the scene was written. Um, from what I've under, from what I understand, where he was supposed to Terry Molloy was supposed to react to the gun being drawn in him in a way like you know what do you like a t- like a tough guy would yeah but instead what does he do he 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 reacts in a way where it's almost like you know what are you doing yeah you know, and it pushes the gun yeah. away yeah yeah, yeah. Right? Very, you know, yeah you might I, I mean it's gently I mean yeah. it's not like grabbing the yeah. gun away from him. it's just like uh, no we're yeah. not going here very, t- very again tenderly and. Um, the, the script said, "No, you got to be, you know, react to it like a like a longshoreman, like a man, you know." But no, he just said, "That's not, that's not real. That's not real." My brother, if my brother's going to pull a gun on me, I'm going to be hurt. Yeah, not angered. Uh, and that's, and even it plays out for a good thirty seconds. Where after he pushes the gun away, he sort of turns and he's just sort of, um, you know. Uh, what are you doing? You know, that's the face. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> what do you? You know, and it's it's, it's heartbreaking, really, because it's a scene where two brothers have just gone down totally separate paths, and it came to this, and uh, it, it came to one holding a gun on the other, and he was shocked by this. He was totally disturbed yeah. by this, and it was very very sad. And he puts his hand up to his chin and just says, "Wow." That's and that's that's not in the yeah. script. Yeah. Wow. How could you do this? And. Uh, and again, Kazan, the, the genius is not interfering with yeah. that, letting the camera roll. And um, by the way, the the I could have been a contender scene. Much of the scene was shot with um, one actor. Yeah. Um, I guess Brando, for one reason or another, did not show up for one of the sh- uh, one of the sh- um, uh, dates, and so. You have Steiger basically <laughs> acting to another, you know, stand-in. Well, uh, uh, Bill, the way I heard the story was that uh, every day at four o'clock, uh-huh. Brando left a set to go uh-huh. see a psychiatrist. Okay, really? And they yep. were shooting that it that. Yeah. there that one day, and uh, uh, Steiger and Brando did the scene once with the point of view yep. of. Uh, the both of them, and uh, then with just Brando. Yeah. But then it came to doing it just from the point of view of mm-hmm. Steiger yeah. and no, Brando, no Brando said, <laughs> four o'clock, I gotta go. Uh, so uh, uh, Steiger was uh, pretty upset. Yeah. Uh, you know, regardless of how cool you are as an actor, it it needs the ability to be able to look into the other person's oh, yeah. face yeah. and be able to feed off of that, mm-hmm. even though they're at that moment they're not on camera. But you, you, if you're a good actor, that's yeah. you're interacting yeah. with your co-stars, and uh, he didn't have that. So I forget there was somebody associated with the film that was that was not like you know a grip or something yeah. like that, but he was associated with the film, and they had him sit, sit yeah. opposite yes. uh, Rod Steiger, yeah. but. For the rest of Steiger's life, he never really forgave uh, Marlon Brando for not uh, giving him the opportunity to do what he gave yeah. to Brando, was the ability to have the actual yeah. man uh, sitting across from him. He pulled it off, though. I mean, those uh, Steiger shots are still wonderful. He, yeah. he is- Steiger could be a, a, an incredible ham. 
in other movies. Oh, overacting, uh, yeah. Overacting yeah. to the degree of, like, yeah. Rod, you know, tone it down. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're uh, really prejudicing yeah. this movie with your overacting. Mm-hmm. But uh, in in that movie, uh, I don't, there was something something going yeah. on there that uh, really clicked. And it was and it was clicking with practically everybody that was sure. associated with the movie, from the stars down to uh, some of the, the, the guys who were playing the longshoremen. Yeah. Uh, that uh, the, the, the the man that played uh, uh, Eva Marie Saint's dad. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, very poignant yeah. Uh, in his uh, uh, just kind of re- re- resigning Resign, to the yeah. fact that this is life. This is this is this is you know I may not have choos- chosen what yeah. I'm doing, but this is what I'm stuck with. So I guess I just got to have to live with it. Uh, and and the guy who rebels, played by Pat Henning, uh, who gets disposed of there uh, by uh, having the the, the uh, liquor dropped on him. On him, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he's very uh, yeah. good too because uh, he all of a sudden gets invigorated yeah. with the idea that. This has got to stop, and maybe I'm the guy who can help change the situation. One of my favorite scenes is when just before the liquor's dropped on him, he holds open his jacket and he's got the Irish whiskey in there. He's you know he's stealing one of them, and uh, mm-hmm. he's very proud of that. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a great scene. The advantage of a little guy in a big coat. That's it. Yeah, that's what he said. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that that cab scene was shot in. Uh, that was in a sound, on a sound stage. That was a very chintzy, low budget little. Um, you know, in fact, they they couldn't even afford a, a screen in the back. Yeah. You know, to, well, you, uh, again, uh, I, you know, you read these things and you wonder: Is this really true? Yeah. Uh, or is it possible that uh, other? Uh, explanations as to why something didn't happen. Yeah. But the story that, that I read mm-hmm. and felt probably could be uh, uh, put on the shoulders of, uh, of uh, Sam Spiegel, the producer. The producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spiegel forgot to order the rear projection equipment. Uh, so they, they had no way to project uh, traffic through that yeah. back window. Yeah. So they were there sitting, uh, wanting to do the scene, no equipment. Uh, and it wasn't apt to happen quickly. So somebody suggested, you know, once I, I was riding in a cab and it had a Venetian blind in the, in the, in the back window. Why not? Uh, get us a Venetian yeah. blind. Quick there, fix. there it was. Yeah. Uh, uh, and does anybody complain? No, it works. Does, does anybody yeah. say, "God, what the hell is that behind yeah. them?" Uh, it just, it's just, yeah. there. and it's because of the power of what you're watching yeah. in the foreground. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's absolutely true. Another powerful scene, of course, uh, in, terms, in terms of letting the camera roll, is the uh, the scene in the playground um, when Terry um, basically accosts um, Evie. And, and talks to her about, um, you know, it's kind of like the, the initial stages of their their little romance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she drops the, she famously drops the, drops the, middle, you know, and uh, no cut. No one's distracted by it. It's just what happens. Brando picks it up. And uh, once again, the scene doesn't necessarily become distracted by it, but you, you, you know, he, he puts the glove on. Yeah. And uh, it's almost like, you know, he's, starting to inhabit her in a way and uh, it's just a, a neat little moment that you know lots of seems lots, real it's, it's, it's real. the most natural thing in the world yeah. yeah and he sits down on the swing and he's picking picking things out of the glove it's just it's just, it's just natural and uh, you buy it totally 
and uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful moment. Um, here's uh, something to perhaps challenge our concept of this being a flawlessly acted film. What if <laughs> I was to suggest to you that um, Johnny Friendly, played by Lee Cobb, was a little broad, played it a little broadly. <laughs> uh, I'll go along with that. Yeah. But uh, that was Cobb's style. Yeah. Uh, y- you can go back into the late 30s and see movies with Lee J. Cobb as a co-star, and it's always, there's big hand gestures, there's, yeah. there's loud voice, uh, um, the William Holden movie, uh, Golden Boy, mm. he was in that. Uh, and he, he was in a, a, a little film that was done at Universal. Uh, I mean, Cobb had a career uh, before uh, the uh, uh, on the waterfront. Sure, uh, sure. And, and I I just think that that was pretty much Lee J. Cobb. That was yeah playing a part. Yeah, it didn't bother me. I thought it fit. Yeah, uh, but uh, I don't think you're out of line in saying that maybe it was a little bit over the top. Mm-hmm. Sure, he was the vil- he was the villain, you know, the bad guy, and uh, the scene at the towards the end in the courtroom where you know Terry turns on him and he's walking by Terry and says, you know, you yeah. you know you don't work anywhere, blah, blah. and then he, you know suddenly he's like about to attack Terry yeah. in the middle of the courtroom, like hold me back, and it's a little bit over. But there is some motivation. Um, Expressed in the dialogue towards the beginning of the scene um, in the bar where he basically says, you know, I used to beg for work in the hole. Yeah. So he talks a bit about his, his background. So the character has a little bit of shading there. But, yeah, for the most part, I would say that he's uh, a little bit over the top of that performance. Not not unforgivable, yeah. but... Doesn't he have a mark? Do you have a mark on a his A scar, back? yeah, and yeah. Uh, he pulls, you know, during that yeah. same scene, he pulls yeah. it down, you know, yeah. you know, look at this. They gave me this to remember me by, and he yeah. pulls down his collar, so... Um, but again, it's, it's it's forgivable. Let's talk about Carl Mal- Carl Malden as uh, Father Barry. Uh, I don't know. I thought he fit. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like you know, uh, 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 Malden can uh, uh, definitely go in uh, the, the overwrought and uh, mm-hmm. uh, I'll use the word again, ham direction. Yeah. Uh, if not uh, that same year, uh, watch a movie called uh, Phantom of the Rue Morgue, mm-hmm. uh, where he plays uh, uh, a guy who's uh, uh, definitely got uh, a problem with romance and with women and utilizes uh, an ape uh, to extract uh, revenge on those who reject him. It was based on uh, Edgar Allan Poe's yeah. murders in the Rue Morgue. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's uh, um, uh, an example of something that you'd probably say that's not award-winning yeah. uh, acting. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he looked very uncomfortable uh, on the screen, but I thought that that was deliberate, that he wasn't comfortable because he's in this place where he is a priest, uh, but he's, he's, he's not quite crossing over to that uh, transgressing. I guess that's the right word mm-hmm. uh, by, you know, by getting the by getting the workers to stand up for themselves, to unionize, to, to, to or not to unionize, to stand up to the union bosses. Mm-hmm. So I thought that that worked for me. Uh, I thought that uncomfortableness that I felt was. Well, well, isn't he finally coming to the realization that he can no longer sit on the sidelines? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that you got to get off my ass here, and, and I, yeah. I, I, I've got to become a part of this, yeah. or else uh, we're all kind of but, doomed. Yes, but it's only after Eva <laughs> says saints aren't saints in their own 
church or something. They 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 yes. hide in the church. That sunk in rather well yeah. with him, and uh, it's much to the chagrin of you know the other priests. That's right. Yeah. And so he's he's almost a character who doesn't he doesn't belong necessarily in the church. He's he's kind of a, a misfit. That's there. exactly right. Yeah. But he's also a misfit down by the waterfront too. So he's kind of you know he has his own struggle, and I think that he could very well be the hero of the story. You know, if you yeah. think about it. Um, I thought it was a, the other scene that sticks out in my mind is the scene after. Uh, Brando has discovered his dead brother hanging on the yeah. hook in the alleyway, mm-hmm. and he goes to Johnny Friendly's bar, and you know, where's Friendly? And you know, everybody's scattered. Yeah. You know, guy in the phone booth. You know, yeah. You're not leaving. Uh, mm-hmm. And who shows up? Yeah. But uh, Father Barry, and uh, uh, there's there's a way that you can take this situation and you can make it work. Yeah. So that you get your revenge, but it's not going to be by pulling the trigger of that gun that you have in your hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was strong business. Yeah. So his spirituality does influence yeah. Terry in a big uh, way. The, the last thing, what's he doing? Uh, they're having a beer together. Yep. And yeah. uh, Brando, the, the, you know, rather dramatically, the, yeah. the blood is dripping down his, his arm. Uh, but... He takes the gun, and it's not one of these. It's like, boom. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a sidelong toss yeah. against the image of uh, Lee J. Cobb on the wall, smashing yeah. the glass in the photograph. Sure, yeah. uh, very symbolic. After he tells uh, Father Barry to go to hell, yeah. <laughs> Father Barry punches him in the face. Yeah. You have a priest here who smokes, drinks, punches people in the face. <laughs> so he's not your... He's a uh, renegade priest, in a way. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, yeah. No, he's... he's, he's Actually, reacting to the surrounding yeah. that he yeah. has found himself yeah. in. Right, he's not this cloistered, um, you know, pontificator of morality. Yeah. He's he's yeah. a doer or above the situation. Yeah, yeah. right. And uh, he's you know sort of uh, the, the obviously the example of Terry because Terry hasn't taken that step yet. He's yeah. he's the next person who needs to get out of his comfort zone and. Uh, you could probably make the argument Terry even has more to, has a lot more to risk by doing that, and uh, I think one thing that's really neat uh, that that's shown uh, within the story Terry does make this uh, this transition. He basically goes to court, names names, and it's it's not done without any consequences because mm-hmm. Terry does lose friends. Yep. he does almost regret it for a little a little while. And even when he goes back down to the waterfront after after this, he's not patted on the back and told what a great guy he is and thank you for doing this, Terry. No, I mean he, the, the his own his own union members are still mm-hmm. kind of keeping their distance from him, you know, as if to say, you know, we're, we're still not ready to go along with yeah. him. So it only it it takes him getting pummeled yeah. before you know the other longshoremen really kind of. Follow suit in a way. Yeah, no, needed that additional step. Yeah, yeah. In, in order to make it a situation where I think the men felt that they could break away mm-hmm. from Lee J. Cobb and not get punished. Yeah, that's right. And um, it's, it's a, I mean, talk about realism, that scene down by the water where there is that fight, that's a. I can't think of any any movie at that time that has a as realistic of a of a fight scene. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Brando looked like he was legitimately getting hurt. Yeah. He was legitimately and Cobb broken. looked like he had received a couple of yeah. whacks in the face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and once again, this is a trans. I, I consider this a very transitional film, and uh, you, you do see blood. You do see 
swelling. You see black and yeah. blue. It's not like a lot of the films prior to this era where you know you didn't see blood at all. You know, you yeah, you, it, it was often just sort of edited it out or just, you know, someone will get punched in the face and the next scene they'd be perfectly healed. And But in this film, no, I mean, it's everyone looks like they're they're carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders. They have people who are bruised, broken. Um, it's just, for me, it really works as, again, a, a transitional movie from that, um, again, the very broad, uh, melodramatic acting mm-hmm. to a more, an era of, of realism. So when I teach this film, uh, a lot of the students really do buy the performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not like a lot of the films before this where they sort of roll their eyes. By the way, some, I do now and then come across a few people who have seen this film. They, they sometimes roll their eyes at the scene, which I find touching and honestly stirring, the scene where Father Barry is down in the uh, the belly of the ship yeah. making his his sermon, mm-hmm. his you know, whatever, Sermon on the Mount, whatever you want to yeah. call it. And, yeah, it might be a little moralistic, but uh, I don't I don't have a problem with it. I, I think it's pretty, you know, pretty powerful. Yeah. Where he says, you know, this this was a crucifixion, mm-hmm. you know, and when he gets the, the cans and, the, and yeah. the, the fruit or whatever thrown at his face, you know, that's, that's, that's pretty moving stuff because of what he was faced with. And Terry's watching on, um, yeah. with with the hook on his shoulder, right? Yeah, very symbolic. He's yep. he's still on the hook, right? And that's that's another motif. We talked about the pigeons as a uh, as a very symbolic yeah. creature, you know. But I, I do think the the hook is something that you see throughout the movie as a as a symbol. Mm-hmm. To go back to the heroic aspect of, of Terry, that you know, it isn't necessarily this. Uh, it's a much more realistic, to use your term, uh, hero than a, a mythological hero. And I think of that great scene. At least for me, it's a great scene when uh, Terry discovers the pigeon. Uh, pigeons are dead. Uh, that it's the kid who you know throws the pigeon at him, and then he goes into the pigeon coop. And, and pigeon for a pigeon. Pigeon yeah. for a pigeon. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the the kid who? I'm a psycho, a little psycho. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kills all the pigeons. Yeah, that's uh, it's pretty disturbing. Yeah. When I when I show that, a lot of the kids who are watching this are like, you know, yeah, did he what? <laughs> you know, is, I don't think the kid real? had any acting uh, experience. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I, I forget exactly what the story was behind him. Yeah. Why he was hired? Uh, there was some connection. He probably uh, lived in one of the tenements. Yeah, uh, maybe. You know? But uh, he uh, and I don't think he was ever in anything else to yeah. speak of. Uh, but he created an impression in yeah. that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the loyalty of the uh, of you know quote unquote loyalty of the pigeons, you know, and that's interesting. That's something that Terry makes a point of, you know, mm-hmm. talking about. You know, uh, pigeons are the most loyal of creatures. Yeah. You know, they, uh, you know, when they, when they mate, they get married just like, uh, you know, they're, they they stay together forever. You know, better better than people, yeah. <laughs> which I think is kind of a a neat detail. The two investigators, uh, Martin Balsam and Leif Erikson, yeah. are kind of like uh, uh, needlers. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, 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 they just pop up uh, at certain points and say, you know, yeah, you, you, know, you really should be given some consideration to mm-hmm. tell the story of what's going on yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as such, uh, they don't really prompt things to happen. They're, they're just kind of like a, a little bit of backstory, yeah. like uh, if you do do this, uh, maybe you'll be doing some good yeah. uh, mm-hmm. without really challenging them to you gotta you gotta do this or we're gonna arrest you or yeah. we're gonna have we're gonna we're gonna take it out on you for yeah. for not doing what yeah. we want you to they do. Just, they sort of just nudge them, and I think that's that's 
good writing there because lots of you know lesser writers would just make the investigators like you got to do this or else. Yeah. But to make yeah. these somewhat, you know, what otherwise could be very da- uh, very forgettable characters. They just sort of nudge, and I kind of think of it as a teacher. You know, that's sort of how you are sometimes as a teacher yeah. with with certain students. You're just you're not going to get a thing if yeah. you just point at them and say, "Do this or else." Right. That just doesn't work. You sometimes have to be that that gentle nudge. You know, with of course with with standards, but then you'll get results that way if you if you communicate it. Yeah. Um, well enough. Who else in the cast? Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, there's a couple of other people that show up for probably the first time. Fred Gwynn. Yes. Oh, yes. I know. Uh, yeah, that's right. I've forgotten about him. Yeah. yeah. Yep. He's one of the one, one of the, the gang. A very young Fred uh, Gwynn. Yeah. Yep. But still looking rather stocky yep. and uh, yep. you know uh, like uh, he, if if he uh, moved just a certain way he'd fall down. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the balance was not quite yeah. uh, uh, fully achieved uh, as far as uh, his movements yeah. were concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mm-hmm. And the, the uh, introduction of men who were part of the gang that uh, they used to be prize fighters, mm-hmm. and they had this kind of burly, yep. uh, very uh, 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 insinuating uh, attitude uh, towards uh, you know. They didn't have to say too many things. Just yeah. their, their mere physical look and presence uh, kind of made you think uh, these are not nice people. Yeah. And uh, who is the? I, I don't remember the name of the character who was picking the people to, to picking the. Oh, it's James over. Westerfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he was a, a character actor who yeah. was in a lot of movies, uh, and I read. I don't know if they included this in the script, but uh, one of the names that he calls out when he's looking for people to perhaps finalize the roster for the day. Yeah, Westerfield. Uh, oh, I never. I, was one of the good. names that he called out. Uh, I, I have to go back and, and verify yeah. that, but that's what I read. Yeah, and it was kind of an in joke. Uh, yeah. Him calling out his own name because uh, it's Mac. I yeah. think he's called Mac. Mac. In, yeah. In the, in the uh, I, I loved him because I disliked him so intensely uh, mm-hmm. um, that he did a, a marvelous yeah. job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, was, he was terrific. He's not. He's part of the gang, but he's he's like uh, he's like the kind of guy that you figure he probably goes home at night yeah. and got a, and got a wife that's uh, yeah. making life miserable yeah. for him. Yeah, so he's taking <laughs> it out on everybody so else. So he's taking it out yeah. on everybody yeah. else. <laughs> that's his motivation, yeah. right? Yeah, he seems to take great joy in bullying Terry yeah. towards the beginning. You know. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, we can't be all goodness and light here. Yeah, we, obviously, it's a great film, and I think yeah. we're, we're in agreement that this, this is one of my personal favorites. But being the classroom critics... Um, oh, well, I'll tell you something that... You know, the last couple of times that bothered me a little bit, Marlon Brando's makeup. Yeah. It's very inconsistent. Yeah, and, and it's and it's almost distracting. Yeah, the, the eyebrows. Ra- ra- especially the eyes. Yeah. Uh, because it... it it looks overdone. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, every uh, the past couple of times that I watched it, I keep saying, "No, no don't, 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 don't make me uh, think that I don't like this movie because of yeah. this aspect of it." Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's bothered me, and I, and I have to be honest. I, with I think it. you're right. It is distracting. Every time I watch it, that's all I seem to focus on. And my students comment on it. Yeah. What's with his eyes? Yeah. Um, so yeah, and then one thing that I find that takes me a little well. 
start at the beginning. Um, I think probably perhaps the most unrealistic dummy mm-hmm. in film history oh, yeah. is the one coming that, off the roof. Yeah, <laughs> it looks like it was swiped from uh, the nearest department store and just tossed down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you know. You can forgive that. But the uh, one thing which I, 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 I'm puzzled by, and I don't understand because it seems like such a, I don't know, just a confusing thing. There's a moment towards the end after, you know, when Terry's on the stand and he's talking, he's, he's naming names and all that. Suddenly it cuts to um, the living room of a an unnamed, uncre- uncredited actor playing a, a politician or something. Mm-hmm. And basically if Johnny, he says to his... Of his wife or his, his butler. There's a butler, yeah. A butler. Um, if Johnny Friendly calls, tell him I'm not home. I don't care. Tell him I'm yeah, not home. Ever. Which obviously yeah. is to communicate that his political strength is going down the tubes. But it's the only. It's it's really the only moment in the film where you just you're, you're entirely or, taking. Or, or, and it also points out that maybe the corruption went beyond the yeah. waterfront. Yeah. Isn't, isn't can't we is it, you could assume that you could have been told that with just a, a line and been, yeah. and, and been yeah, kept maybe in that, that was world. a little excessive. Yeah. So it just sort of takes you out of that world uh, and you're just like well, who's this, you know, and, and yeah. some of my students are like was there a previous scene? Is there you know this is a subplot I didn't Yeah. I didn't uh, catch. But so that's you know that's one moment that I thought was Was good. there ever any intimation that uh, there was more to the film than ended up in the 108 minutes? Uh, did, any, did you ever hear I don't about know. I scenes know. or things that, gee, I'd love to see that, you know, that, that it was, it was, it, yeah. it, it, they shot something, but yet it, it was not included. I, I never had that association I, I, with no, Waterfront. I have not heard that. Uh, there, there are certainly no... Um, but there, you realize uh, and can probably agree that there are movies oh, yeah. uh, that, oh, absolutely. that sure. do have that. Even uh, around this uh, time, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, know. Whether you want it to be a, a bad connotation mm-hmm. or, or just something intriguing that... Uh, a last-minute judgment, and/or just yeah. uh, saying, "Well, uh, th- we promised a movie that was going to be two hours, yeah. and this made it two hours and five minutes, so we had to take something yeah. out." And this is the scene that we took out. Well, believe me, uh, as Orson Welles uh, fanatics that, that Andrew and I are, we, you know, his whole body of work is filled with one film after another with uh, footage that no longer problems. exists, <laughs> problems upon problems, and. You know, the, you know, not getting off too off topic. You have, uh, you know, the magnificent Ambersons, where you have about you know, something like sixty minutes just yeah. deleted for. And back then, they had absolutely no foresight. They just, if they wanted room on the archive shelves, they just they they burnt they burnt it. Yep, <laughs> a lot different. Doesn't but I, I think that for me, it was the the that corruption goes higher. I think you're absolutely right. Sure. And I automatically thought of the um, maybe it was the owner at the end of the ship. Who, who says, come on, uh, the guy in the white, I think he has a white suit on and a hat. And he's, uh, you know, uh, he, he says to Johnny, are you going to get these guys to work? And I, he said something like, I'll get them to work in two minutes. So I, I, in my mind, there was a correlation between that scene that you're talking about, Bill, and, 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 yeah. and that guy at the end Could of the be. film. Yeah. What about this? Um, sometimes I'll see a movie, and it's clearly a morality tale that, that, neat, that ends quite neatly. Like this, this film does, and you know, I'm happy it does. It, it, it communicates something extremely positive, and it's an, it's inspiring and whatnot. Uh, I sometimes ask myself, what if it ended? What if it ended differently? What if it was somewhat of a a pessimistic message? Mm-hmm. For one example, I give um, I like to give is what, you know, Dead Poet Society. What if that film ended 
with no one standing on the desk except for Ethan Hawke's character. You know, very different statement. It would probably be more realistic. Mm-hmm. Probably um, it would be a bittersweet ending, let's say. Um, what if this movie ended with perhaps n- not everyone joining him? Uh, could this have... It would obviously be a different statement, but what would you think of that? Would, would, uh, well, how about... Uh, didn't read the book, didn't even know it existed, but apparently Bud Schulberg wrote, uh, put into book form this waterfront story. Uh, no. I didn't and know that. And this was like in 1955, like a year mm-hmm. later. It was a novelization of the film? Or yes. A, oh, really? And Terry Malloy gets killed in the book. So he, he dies during that fight? Uh, I, I, there really wasn't fleshed out. And yeah. I and I, I, I'll be honest, I didn't know it existed. Yeah. yeah. And I, uh, of course, wouldn't have had the occasion to read it. But it did say that Terry Malloy dies at the end of it. He's killed. Interesting. Uh, I'd be curious to read that. Yeah. How would that have played out uh, with an audience if when uh, Eva Marie Saint and Carl Malden ran around the backside of that little hut uh, floating on the water and they're almost floating in the water Mm -hmm. was a dead Marlon Brando? Yeah, sure. Uh, Then would it have been Father Barry who came to the uh, four and said, you know, you guys have got to rise up. Uh, you can't let this crime yeah. go unpunished. And you've got to go in there because I want you to, because Terry would have wanted yeah. you to, yeah. and uh, uh, go to work. And you're not taking any cab from any uh, uh, Westerfield yeah. guy, or you're not taking any orders from Lee J. Cobb. You're doing it because you realize this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Let's go. That could be very powerful yeah. too. Uh, that would make Marlon uh, Brando's character even more of a of a, a Christ, Christ, yeah. Christ figure. That's right. right. But it would uh, take away from I think you know I think one of obviously the most powerful moments is, is that walk you know at the end you mm-hmm. know the great point of view shot and Brando just just struggling to get up that you know that, that would have to be sacrificed. But, um, but you, you know you know, who, you know who comes to the fore a little bit too and could have been the character that that started the walk. Even Marie Saint's father. Yes, he's the guy who pushes, pushes him into Lee the water. Yeah. into the brink. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, I, I think that could have worked. That, that could have yeah. worked. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't see it ending very optimistically for me. I. I, I don't see much hope in it. Um, well, you, well, you know what? Because Lee J. Cobb is is hollering in the background. That's right. I'll be back. Yeah. You haven't seen the last of me. And the door shuts on the workers. So they're sort of uh, the way. And maybe it's my Marxist reading of it, but they're sort of trapped in this this uh, rat cage of they have to do this this kind of yeah. work to to make a living, whatever you, kind of living you, it, it is. And you can't sure. believe that there was only one Johnny. Friend. That's right. That's right. If the corruption goes all the way to the top, as, as that one scene might suggest, yeah. remove Johnny Friendly and replace him with else. they still have a lot of work to do. That's right. Yeah. Somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't see it as, as ending very optimistic. It's it's a battle that was won yeah. uh, rather than the war. The and war. I think that and th- there's a scene where the, you know I think it was Carl Marlin's character and Father Barry who does say that yeah. you know you want to win the war, take that walk, I th- something to that effect. That's, that's a very good point. Yeah. Right. Well, gentlemen, this has been a lot of fun. I think we uh, we okay. really uh, discussed this film in a very profound way, and I really appreciate you uh, joining me on the Classroom Critics Podcast. So 
uh, it's going to do it for uh, this edition of the Cl- uh, Classroom Critics Podcast. Um, so I'd like to thank Barry Stillman for uh, for joining us, and Andrew, as always. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate uh, you being on, and uh, my name is Bill Iverson. Uh, we'd love it if you went on to uh, Facebook and uh, went on to our, our page and kept the discussion going with some commentary about this film and any of the other films that we discussed in prior shows. And uh, please go on to uh, iTunes and rate us, tell us what you think, and um, we would love to hear from you. And uh, we'd love to have you once again on our uh, next edition of the Classroom Critics Podcast. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.